Not only is that song amazing, but this is probably Ron's last Sunday to sing with us. He's been transferred by his job to one of the Carolinas. And so, Ron, you have blessed us in amazing ways in these last number of years. Wow. I know I'm going to get in trouble. It wouldn't be the first time, won't be the last. When I talk about somebody leaving, and you didn't talk about my relative leaving, my friend, I'm sorry about that, but, man, I'm going to miss that voice and his heart and his passion. You have sermon notes in your bulletin this morning. I encourage you to take them out. Basically, what I could have said yesterday on phone tree is just read the Old Testament. You'll be ready for the day. There is so much scripture. I think it took them an hour to put all the scripture in the overheads this morning. I'm not going to refer to all of them. But I put them in the sermon because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I spent a week or two getting ready for this. Dave and I have gone over this service and this event for a couple of hours. You're going to hear it in 30-some minutes and try to process it. So there are a lot of scripture that I'm referring to this morning, and all of it's in there. And I'd love for you to just to flow through the day or maybe the week or at some point in a great experience or an emotional context with God. You'll just go back and revisit some of the scriptures we've shared this morning to kind of put it in context. Every once in a while, not everybody and maybe no one in the room here, but every once in a while, when we look at someone, we could have a tendency as we do that to evaluate them based on looks or intelligence or wealth or abilities or relationships. And many times, intentionally or not, we determine their value based on those things. Now, you may not do it very often, but even John Maxwell says every once in a while, we'll put a little invisible number on their foreheads and we'll look at them through that number between 1 and 10. And if they're a 1, we don't spend much time with them. If they're a 10, we want to make sure we spend a lot of time with them. We also want to make sure everybody knows who we hang around with. And every once in a while, when we look at someone, we have a tendency to evaluate them and maybe even put a value on them based on how we see them through a grid of a variety of things. Every once in a while, if we're not careful, we find our own value in things that we either have or want or see. And every so often, someone may even find their value in who they know or who they associate with. Every once in a while, someone may find their value in who they know or who they associate with, and they'll make sure they tell you who they know and who they associate with. I want to take Moses as an example. Over the last number of months, we've been involved in Old Testament characters that I believe still speak to us today is when they were written. And you're going to see that in the context of Moses. And next week, one of my favorite characters is every single one of them have something to say to us today. today not just a history book that we read a long time ago or that we read even now in the context of history, but each one of these characters have something to say to us today. Thousand years, 5,000 years ago, they were there. But every single one of them have something to say to us today. What I want to do with Moses is kind of lay his life over our lives as to how he looks at himself and sees himself, how he relates to those around him, and most of all, how he relates to God. And if you take all three of those areas and how you understand and view yourself, how you treat and respond to those around you, and how you relate or connect to God, you're going to also see that these three areas are absolutely critical to having the kind of life that God wants us to have. Last Sunday morning, we talked about living a dream, and we talked about Joseph's life and how important it is to make sure we live life with intentionality, that we live it well, that we do all that God designed us to be. 
To be able to do that well, you've got to tie in last Sunday to this Sunday as well and, and make sure that you have an honest, honest look at who you are inside some of the areas of your life or my life that we need to really evaluate and do a much better job at. Now, every single one of us, if I were to ask you, how's your prayer life, how's your Bible life, or whatever, you know, I want to do better, I want to be better, and I get that. But I really want us to be honest with ourselves about some of the issues in our life that we've left undealt with, as you'll see in a moment. How we respond to and treat those around us, whether in leadership or responding to the leadership, and then finally, how you relate to and connect to God. All three of these areas in your sermon notes this morning. I want to take the first one, how it relates to understanding himself, and tie that into ourselves at the end of the message. The incident that I use here as a foundation is Numbers chapter 20. Now that one's going to be on the screen. Most of them are this morning. I want to read some of them, but not all of them. It's one of those many times where Moses is taking the children of Israel through and into the promised land or toward the promised land, and they're complaining. They're whining about something. Forty years. Moses will put up with that. I found it fascinating when I wrote it down that I'm January 1, 2018, I will have finished or celebrated my 40th year in ministry in the CNMA. And I find it fascinating when I looked at 40 years and the fact that Moses put up with complaining and whining for 40 years. I thought, God, how blessed am I? I've only had one person <laughs> upset with me in all 41 years, 40 years of my ministry. I'm really blessed. I've only had one or two complaints in all these years. I'm amazingly blessed. Okay, maybe three. <laughs> he listens to it again. Forty years he's been putting up with it here in Numbers chapter 20. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived in the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition against Moses and Aaron. Not the first time, won't be the last. They quarreled with Moses and said, If we'd only died with our brothers when they fell dead before the Lord, why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? Why? Because you asked God for 400 years to get out of that place. That's why you're taking us here. But they didn't get that. It has no grain, no figs, no grapevines, no pomegranates. I'd be okay with that. I mean, no matter how old I get, I'm not doing figs. I'm just telling you right now. And no water to drink. Moses had heard their complaints over and over again for 40 years. What I love about Moses is the very first response is, God, what do I do? Now, for those of you who had family members who aren't always thrilled with your parenting style, and they'll tell you about it, those who have had people in your organization who complain about this or complain about that or want to put you down or talk about you behind the back or maybe even say something in front of you or putting in a little note in a complaint box, Sometimes our first response, not always, God, what do I do? We want to retaliate or say something. I love Moses. The very first thing he wants to do is to go into the tent of meeting and fall face down before Almighty God. And the glory of God showed up. The Lord said to him in verse 7, Take the staff that you and your brother Aaron and you and your brother gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out water. You'll bring water out of the rock for the community so that their livestock can drink. If you know anything about Moses' life, that staff was significant. When God called him to lead the people of Israel after 80 years, Moses felt inadequate to do that. God, why me? There's no way I could do that. Moses also was familiar with his past. God says, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. Throw it down. He did, and it became a snake. Pick it up, and it became a staff again. 
that staff represented the presence and power of Almighty God. Moses used that on a number of occasions when he wanted to part the water. He put a staff on the water and it parted. So there was significance in the staff. God's answers were pretty clear. Take the rod, take the staff, speak to the rock, get out of the way, and water comes out. But look at what happens in verse 9. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he told him to. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm, struck the rock twice with his staff, water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Not exactly what God said for him to do. Notice the phrase, must we bring water out of this rock? Who's the we he's referring to? Him and Aaron. Also notice, instead of speaking to it, he strikes it not once, but twice, and water comes out. Now look at God's response in verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I gave them. That was his destiny. I mean, that's why he was doing what he was doing. That's why he was putting up with all this, because the intentionality, the ultimate goal was to take them to the promised land. And now here in this particular context, it's not going to happen. And you look at that verse and you say, God. I mean, that's a pretty severe punishment, wouldn't you say? He put up with a lot. Cut him a break. After all, he's been doing this for a long period of time. He put up with their complaining over and over again. He always sought your face. One time, didn't obey. One time, disobeyed. One time, didn't carry out your directions completely and explicitly. And you say he can't fulfill his destiny, can't take them into the promised land? If you read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll notice that Moses asked God three times to reverse the decision. And God says no. You ever wonder why such a severe punishment I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that, that we is huge. Moses seems to indicate by that that he and Aaron were the ones performing the miracles. And God says, I want to be honest with you, in Isaiah 42, I will not share my glory with anyone. And God indicates that his glory and his holiness is on the line by the fact that Moses doesn't fulfill his wishes. James 1.19 also says it best when he said, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become anger, angry, for a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Ah, maybe there's a clue. Most will say it was the first issue, though, God's glory. And Moses didn't fulfill what he did, and God's holiness was on the line. But I'm going to contend that there was something else in Moses' life an issue left undealt with that cost him the opportunity to fulfill his mission, which was to take the people into the promised land. And I believe the issue in this case was anger. Remember the first time he came in contact with Moses, how in anger he killed the Egyptian? He saw one of his fellow Israelites getting beating, beaten up, and he looks this way and looks that way just to make sure nobody is looking. Then he kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. In Exodus chapter 11, while dealing with Pharaoh at find a section of Scripture in verse 8 that says, Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. 
In Exodus 32, after coming down off the mountain, he goes up on the mountain to meet with God, and God writes on the stones the Ten Commandments, and Moses comes down and finds out the people of Israel got tired waiting for him to come back, and they wanted some identification of a God, and so they took all of their jewelry and everything, and they put it in a, a pit, and I love Aaron's de uh, definition of that. We, we threw it all in, and a golden calf came out. I don't know how that happened. And then all of a sudden Moses comes down after the experience and finds them dancing around and celebrating this small G God, not the God of the universe, who brought them out of Egypt, performed miracle after miracle. And Moses is livid. When he approached the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, he threw the tablets out of his hand, he broke them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, burned it in fire, then ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink. That's a little bit reactionary. Wouldn't you say? God, I, I love God. By the way, when he takes Moses up in chapter 34 to do the Ten Commandments again on two tablets of stone, he said, hey, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to put it on tablets of stone. Remember, you broke the first ones. I'm going to do it again. And now the story you see here in Numbers chapter 20 and God's punishment. The ultimate lesson I think I have in your sermon notes, as sure as I'm standing here, areas in our life left undealt with will and can keep us from all that God has promised. Areas in our life left undealt with will and can keep us from all that God has promised. Sin has serious con consequences and cannot be taken lightly. Can it be forgiven? Absolutely. That's why we celebrate what we celebrate at Christmas, why we celebrate what we do at Easter, is that the God of the universe sent his only son so that we could have life and have it forever. We could have our sins washed away, cast as far away as the east is from the west, never to be remembered anymore. But sin left undealt with. Sin left unconfessed, sin that you know you're dealing with, sin that you know you're struggling with, things in your life that you know the Spirit of God is pointing out and is pointing out on a regular basis and you leave it there and you don't deal with it, I'm telling you, it can cost you everything. Can it be forgiven? Absolutely. Left undealt with, it can destroy you. And sadly enough, it can destroy the people around you. I've seen it destroy marriages, families, careers, and churches. I have a note in there to read Joshua chapter 7, the story of Achan. It's a powerful, and we'll talk a little maybe next week, powerful section of Scripture. At the very least, it will keep you from becoming all that God intended and from certainly reaching your full potential. At the very worst, it can cost you everything. Second area of his life, his relationship with other people. There's a couple that come to mind, and they're, again, two of my favorite One's in Exodus 32, and it's God's reaction to the golden calf situation where God says in verse 9, look, I've seen these people almost as if saying, I've had it, they're stiff-necked, I'm going to destroy them and start over with you. Had I been Moses after all of those years, that I said, great idea, God, get them. I'm tired of them anyhow. I think you and I could do better at choosing the family and the people that I want to take to the promised land. Let's do it. Instead, Moses makes an unbelievable statement. He asked God to forgive them. What great sin these people have committed in verse 31. They have made themselves gods of gold, small g God. But now please forgive their sin. And if you don't, would you take me out of the book you've written? Wow. He not only identifies with the sins of the people, he wants to make sure God understands how serious he is and how much he loves the people that he's leading. If you can't forgive them, just take my name out of the book you've written. 
I'd have a hard time giving up my salvation and my name being written in the Lamb Book of Life for people who let me down over and over again. And I look at Moses and I thought, wow, what a lesson to learn. In Numbers chapter 12, Moses' first wife must have died at some point. He marries again. And his brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, obviously didn't agree with his decision. And if you ever have a family member who disagreed with your choice of a mate, don't put your hands up. All right? They may be sitting beside you. I'm sure you've experienced it at one point or the other where some of your family members maybe didn't agree with your choice of a mate. And in this case, Moses finds himself in that situation. In Numbers 12, they come together and Miriam and, and Aaron begin to talk about Moses probably behind his back, maybe to his face because of this Cushite wife or he married a Cushite. They say, hasn't the Lord spoken to us? Just not only through Moses and they begin to complain about it. And I love how obvious God is. And it says, and the Lord heard this. No kidding. Not anything that goes by that God doesn't hear. And obviously God hears it and summons them to the tent. Now, some of you, I'm sure, remember growing up when dad came home from work or when mom said, wait till dad comes home from work and he's going to talk to you. And maybe every once in a while, both parents see this disagreement going on and this backstabbing or back talking or loud mouth and all this kind of a stuff. And you say to them, go to your room, we'll be up in a moment. Any of you ever experienced that? You can raise your hands on that one. Go to your room, we'll be up in a moment. I love the fact, every once in a while, when we were doing that, we'd say to our girls, go to your room, we'll be up in a moment. I said to my wife, we ought to just have supper, watch a movie, and then go up. Just let them sit there for a while. Can you imagine what it was like when God said, go to the tent, I'll be there in a moment to meet with you? I would have died in the spot. I mean, it's one thing for your mom and dad to say, go to your room, I'll be up in a moment. God said, go to the tent, I'll be there in a moment to deal with you. And God does, and he shows up. And he begins to talk to them about their special relationship that he and Moses has, and talks about how he speaks to him and how he communicates with him. And, and then in verse 10, he leaves. And as he leaves, you look at Miriam, and she stands there with leprosy, white as snow. Aaron begins to plead with God to heal her, and Moses, who could have said, that serves you right, said, God, will you heal her? And God does. Verse 3 of the same chapter said, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else in the face of the earth. Those of you who deal with people on a regular basis know that dealing with people sometimes can be pretty difficult and sometimes can take an emotional strain on you. Because there are many times emotional abuse that goes with that. A wise person in your sermon notes said, Maturity is moving from a soft skin and a tough heart to tough skin and a soft heart. Great leaders have a genuine love for those they lead, regardless of their response to our leadership. One of the reasons why, because they're very aware of how God views them and their flaws, yet still loves them and allows them to lead. Great leaders, whatever that looks like in your home or in your business organization or in a church, great leaders have a genuine love for those they lead, regardless of their response to our leadership. A number of years ago, in another context, I made a statement along the same lines, and I said, look, if you don't love those you lead, consider a change of vocation or a change of location. I found myself later recanting and saying, if you can't genuinely love those you lead, don't relocate and not love those you're going to. Because problem people and situations are everywhere. 
Dave said a moment ago that we all had the opportunity, or a lot of our staff had the opportunity to go to the Alliance Council, which is a gathering of pastors and church attenders and missionaries from around the world. We'll have a conversation with another pastor. We only see them every other year in this context, or uh, we have started a network of large churches in our district as well as nationally. We do one of those every once in a while. And, and I go to these situations, and I hear story after story of some of these guys who are literally, in some cases, going through nightmare situations. And, and Bob and I and our staff walk home and say, wow, we are really, really blessed at CAC. I love this place. And some of these guys are going through nightmares. And they're sharing their stories and they're talking about what they have to deal with. And this one person that just keeps irritating the daylights out of them, complained for five years or ten years or eight years. And so all of a sudden I said, okay, I've had it. I'm moving. I'm relocating. I'm going to another church. And wouldn't you know it, that guy found a U-Haul and followed him and showed up in the same church. He didn't really. What he found out is they're everywhere. And they're in every situation and every circumstance. If you can't genuinely love those you lead, don't relocate and not love the next group. Change vocation. Just be glad that God didn't give up on you when you let him down. Which leads to the final relationship regarding Moses, and that is how he related to God. Because if it's not a matter of changing location or changing vocation, really then ask God to give you a love that only he can give. And make sure that my relationship with him is what it needs to be. Moses had an incredible understanding and an awareness of the holiness of God. An incredible understanding and an awareness of the holiness of God. There are passage after passage, and I'm not going to read them all this morning, obviously, where, where God meets Moses and it's an unbelievable situation and setting. In Exodus 19, when he goes up to the mountain to get the commandments of God, and he recognizes that he's in the presence of Almighty God, and there's no way to ever recreate it, and you'd never want to do that. If you've been to Sight and Sound, maybe out in Lancaster, you've been in that setting where when they talk about the holiness of God, the place shakes, and they've got surround sound everywhere, and you can feel the thunder and the lightning that goes with that. On the morning of the third day in Exodus 19, where there was thunder and lightning, God's on the mountain with Moses, and he's getting the Ten Commandments, and there was a thick cloud that covered the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast, everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was filled with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in a fire. The smoke built up like the smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. In Exodus chapter 34, when he's up again on Mount Sinai in one of these covenant relationships with Almighty God, he comes back down, and his faith was, face was so brilliant that it actually radiated out. People couldn't look at him because they recognized that he was with God. He had to put a veil over his face so it didn't shine on them so hard they couldn't see. And when I read a section of Scripture like that, I often wonder every once in a while, what would it be like if after a service on a Sunday morning, we went out and our faces so shine with the glory of God that people would say to us, where have you been? What was it like? Now, you're going to smile after you leave today just because of the context of what we're about to do in a moment. But I'm telling you, can you imagine what people would say or think or see in us if they recognized beyond the shadow of a doubt they've been with God? I mean, there's no way to describe the look on their face other than the fact that they've been with Almighty God. Later in the book of Acts, when it talks about the, 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 the savvy of Peter and Paul and their response and, and John and some of those things that 
that the, the priests and the Levites and all those who killed Jesus said, man, I can tell these guys have been with Jesus. Wouldn't it be amazing when we leave this place this morning, when we find ourselves in the presence of Almighty God, in your own devotional life, while you're driving to work, when you've got to deal with that person at work, and you're driving in and listening to praise music, and you recognize you've been in the presence of Almighty God, and you walk into that setting or that meeting or that business association, and there's just something about you that is different. I love the fact that every time, almost every single time, you see Moses in his relationship with God. You see the elements of awe and respect and holiness and majesty and splendor and power and the necessity of obedience. Every single one of us, every single one of us need a healthy, holy, reverent fear and respect for a holy God. A shallow view of God will lead to a shallow life. God is to be highly exalted and praised. He is the only wise God, the creator, maker, and sustainer of the universe. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He gives commands we obey. No multiple choice involved. He doesn't bow to our hurried pace to our flippant attitudes. God wants and demands first place in our lives. No arguments, no options. He gave us life. He can take our life. He gave his life for our sin, and he asked for our life in return. He expects me to deal with my sin, to not leave it undealt with. He expects me to look inside and make sure that when I come to him, I honestly confess and not leave this for myself or in myself, but I give it to him because I don't want to hold it anymore, and I don't want it to impact how I live my life. He expects me to deal with others as graciously and lovingly as he has dealt with me. And to do that well, I've got to have a healthy, holy respect for the living God. And when we do, we will take our worship seriously. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah said this, I went to church like I always do. I walked into church, it was Sunday morning, so I went like I always do. But it was different, God was there. It wasn't just church as I always saw it. God was actually there. And when he was there, the place shook. I mean, there were angels everywhere singing. I could feel the smoke. I could feel the power. I could feel the radiance of Almighty God in that context. And they began to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices and the doorposts shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And I realized I'm done. I'm toast. I'm in the presence of Almighty God, and I can't bring my sin with me. Woe is me. I am a sinful man, and I dwell among people with sin under lies left undealt with. When John the disciple saw the Lord in Revelation chapter 1, he said basically the same thing. It was the Lord's day, just like this day, and I was in the Spirit, and all of a sudden I realized I was in the presence of something amazing. I heard a voice like a trumpet behind me, and I turned, around to, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were as white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its radiance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and hell itself. 
David said in Psalm 145, Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will tell of his works to another. They will speak of his mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of his majesty. And I'll meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I'll proclaim your good deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and of your dominion it will endure through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all of his promises, loving to everything he's made. My mouth will speak in the praise of God. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. When you get a full glimpse of the holy God in your sermon notes, you will deal with your issues. It will dramatically affect how you look at and treat other people, and it will forever change how you worship. God of the universe, may you in this place not to recreate anything or try to manipulate in any way at all. May you just visit us with your presence. May we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we're in the presence of a holy God who delights in dwelling with the praise of his people. And so, Father, we give you our praise and adoration. We join with thousands of voices down through the ages who have given you praise. May you hear our voice and may the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts, and the expression of our souls be pleasing in your sight. And when it does, we'll look inside, be honest with our stuff, and we'll look at people dramatically different. And we'll genuinely understand what true, real, and genuine worship looks like. So be pleased with what you hear in these moments together. In Jesus' name I pray.